I have like a thing hanging in my studio, which is my four favorite parts of music, and it's hooks, humor, sex, and soul. And so to me, what makes a great song is some combination of those things. Hello and welcome, fellow human. My name is Zachary Stockhill, and you are listening to Humans in Love, a podcast that looks at culture, relationships, and personal development from unconventional perspectives. Consider it self-improvement that doesn't take itself too seriously. Thanks for being here. Happy Tuesday, fellow human. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Humans in Love. You might hear some clanging and banging in the background, hopefully not. Uh, I mean, by banging, I don't mean human beings. I mean, literally steel on steel. There's construction downstairs in my apartment, so recording this intro (laughs) has been tricky, but I'm just going to try and power through. Anyway, there it is. Maybe you heard that. Anyway, today on the show, I have an absolutely wonderful, fascinating, very friendly and open and honest and very interesting guest. Her name is Carsey Blanton. She is a singer-songwriter, and you might remember we talked about Carsey in episode two of this podcast, back when I was talking to Dr. Brad Blanton, who's Carsey's dad. And you'll also remember at the end of that episode, I played Carsey's song, To Be Known, which is, as I said in that episode, I think one of the prettiest songs I've heard in a long while. I think you'll enjoy today's interview. We cover a lot of ground. We talk about sex and songwriting and open relationships and monogamy and jealousy and creativity and New Orleans and all kinds of things. I think you're really going to want to stick around to hear this conversation. Carsey, very much like her dad, seems very open and honest and willing to talk about just about anything. And I really had a great time talking with her today. A quick note before we get started that, as always, I'm very appreciative of all the people who are leaving ratings and reviews on iTunes. So please, if you haven't done so already, take 30 seconds, make sure you subscribe to Humans in Love on iTunes, and leave a rating and a review. That's it. That's all I've got for you today. I won't keep you from this interview any longer. Please enjoy this conversation with singer-songwriter and all-around cool human being, Carsey Blanton. Somebody else was waiting for you All your emptiness would end If only they'd adore you How you had a child's way of dreaming Don't you miss it now you've grown And isn't it all you've ever wanted Quick question, where where are you based? I'm in northern Thailand. Oh, okay, got it. Yeah, and you are in America I'm in somewhere. New Orleans, yeah. Okay. <laughs> New Orleans, America. Very cool. Are you based there permanently or? Yeah, more or less. What's New Orleans like? <laughs> that's, that's probably right near the top of the list of American cities I really want to check out. It's the best one by far. What, what's, um, what's so good about it? It's just really unusual. It's not really like anywhere else I've been, at least. Um, has a really interesting mix of cultures um, and just a lot of crazy, weird traditions that happen. Like the parades are one of my favorite things about the city. They have second line parades every time somebody dies. And I live in a neighborhood called Treme, which is a historic neighborhood here. And so we get parades going by the house like at least once a week. And it's just with a brass band and then a bunch of people in funeral clothes or sometimes dressed up like they're all, they'll all coordinate colors and just walk down the street and sing songs. And it's like a part of everyday life here. That's just a window into what the city is like. <laughs> As a, a musician, did that city's sort of musical, vast musical history, did that factor in, into your decision to live there? Totally. Yeah, I feel very musically inspired here. I write a lot here, more than anywhere else I've lived. So, uh, write songs, that is. So, um, it's a good place to live for that reason. Quick side note, there was an HBO show a few years ago, Treme, right? What did yeah. What did people in New Orleans think of that show? What did you think of it? Um, 
I thought it was great. There, most people loved it because they hired a lot of people. Um, and that show, David Simon, who makes that show, is pretty is careful to hire locals everywhere that he makes a show. So, and they paid pretty well, and so it brought in a lot of work, and a lot of people got to be on the show. <laughs> so, I think that made people, you know, warm to it more easily. And it was pretty accurate. I mean, everybody I talked to feels like it was a pretty accurate representation of the city. So that guy is so smart. I'm obsessed with the wire still all these years later. He's yeah, yeah, he's fantastic. (laughs) I love him. Well, let's, let's talk about songwriting for a minute. So the first, the first song I ever heard of yours is smoke alarm, which I'd like to get to maybe a little later, but a song that I heard recently when I was interviewing your your dad, he pointed, he specifically referred to this one called to be known, which Mm -hmm. kind of bowled me over. I think I said uh, in my email to you, what inspired that song? Where did that come from? Um, that was a weird one. And actually, apropos that we were talking about New Orleans, that was one of the ones I wrote really fast. Um, and I just was walking in New Orleans and got the idea for the song. It wasn't really, it didn't feel very personal. Some songs feel like I need to write about this thing going on in my life. Um, and that one didn't feel like that. It felt like just sort of a, an idea came from the heavens. Um, which that's an interesting topic with my dad. Cause he and I <clears throat> have talked about it a few times. I, I experience creativity as very magical. Like, um, a lot of my creativity is, it is hard to explain where it's coming from for me. And so I have a lot of like superstitious semi beliefs about it. Uh, and my dad is, you know, at least on paper is very committed to rationality and things that can be explained scientifically. But if you back him into a corner about the experience of creativity, he actually experiences it that way too. (laughs) I think most creators experience it as a little bit magical, whether we like to talk about it or not. So that song was a very magical experience for me. I can't tell you where it came from or why I wrote it. And that's my favorite. All my favorite songs are like that. (laughs) Did it, was there a moment or an interaction or did you have the melody first? I'm always kind of interested to, to pick into like the, the mechanics of songwriting, so to speak. Yeah. I mean, that one is either not a very good story or a great story because it, <laughs> it really didn't, I can't explain it at all. Um, I was walking home from uh, Frenchman street where a friend of mine was playing a show, which is like maybe a half a mile from my house. And it was, it was, a summer evening in New Orleans, which already feels really magical. It's like very humid, but you'll get a little breeze every once in a while. And so I'm walking through the French Quarter and I just was like feeling all these feelings and smelling the jasmine and the warm airs hitting my skin. And if the whole first verse of the song occurred to me at the same time, lyrics, melody, the concept, and then the idea of the ghost was there because I was like, wow, that was really ghosty. So then it was it was easy to write the next verse about all the ghosts who holler in the night because it was like there was a ghost hollering at me. <laughs> so, yeah, I didn't have the concept at all before I started writing it. What does that even just that phrase mean to you? Like, isn't it all you've ever wanted to be known? What are you trying to get at there, do you think? Um, I think I'm trying to get at one of the things that humans all share. So that feels like a very human um, sentiment to me, like everybody, regardless of who they are, where they are, you know, how much money they make, uh, is is trying to achieve the same goal, which is to feel understood and to feel known. Um, and there's sort of different levels of that, which I, I kind of try to get out in the song. So I think the, the most obvious one is you're, you're looking for intimacy and commitment. So the opening verse is like about you go to sleep with a stranger and you wake up all alone. And that's like one way of seeking for someone to understand you. And then later on, I feel like it get it becomes more about self-knowledge. So like there's the final verse about, uh, uh, about you're singing hallelujah. You never know the gravity of grace until it hits you like a stone. And isn't it all you've ever wanted to be known? The idea of that last verse for me was like, it's about knowing yourself or about being known in a sort of broader spiritual sense, like being known by the angels or by God or something. Um, and that's what makes you sing hallelujah. (laughs) So it's sort of like there's this, this feeling of being understood and being gotten 
that I think can happen in many different levels. And it's what we're all seeking all the time. And it's like, I'm seeking that with music because I want my audience to connect to my songs and know me, but also because I want to have this experience of being connected to the world or all humanity or God or whatever you want to call it. And that's another way of being known. (laughs) Would you say most of your songs come like that kind of mysteriously? It's almost like, you know, if if you believe in the muse or not, the muse is kind of speaking through you. Um, yeah. Because then you like you, I read about other songwriters who really approach it like Hemingway or something. You know, they get up at the same mm-hmm. time every morning and they sit at a desk with a guitar or a piano and they hammer away. Yeah. What's yeah. what's your typical process? Do you have a typical process? Yeah, I wish they all came like that one, but they don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's like probably one in twenty. I have that experience where it feels really magical and really easy. Um, and then the other 19, it's much more, I'm, it's, I'm not a Hemingway. I don't like put on a suit and go write every day, but I do write most days <laughs> and I do, um, I'm fairly dedicated to the craft of songwriting, which has to do with, you know, learning other people's songs and, um, thinking conceptually about songs and stuff like that. Um, and like trying to write a song, like I have writing dates with my collaborators sometimes where we sit down and try to write a song. Um, I would say for me, it's like, you know, there's that, that saying that art is 99% inspiration or 99% perspiration and 1% inspiration. And then there's Elizabeth Gilbert, who's an author, wrote this book, Big Magic. Are you familiar with her? I know she's Eat, Pray, Love, right? Yeah. She wrote Eat, Pray, Love. And then she had a a series of crises about creativity because she had had this monumental success. And so then she did a great TED talk about creativity, one of my favorites. And then she wrote this book, Big Magic, that's about creativity. And she says in this book, it is 99% perspiration, 1% inspiration. But what they don't tell you is that the 1% is the only part that matters. And I think that's right. So in other words, if you're 100% perspiration, you're never going to make anything good. So it's like you're doing the 99% of the work just to like get that 1% of magic or the muse or God or whatever it is. And that's what imbues all of your work with that thing that makes work good (laughs) is the only way I can say it. Hmm. Um, so anyway, a lot of it is work and the magical experience I think is what makes all the other work, uh, worth it or happen or relatable or something. I know it's this, it's a tricky thing to talk about, but so my process, uh, on regular days, I have a studio in my backyard called the watermelon And I go out there with my cup of tea and um, sit in my chair and play a few songs and see if I'm inspired to try and write anything or work on something that I've already started or whatever it is. And then occasionally I'll have a more magical experience instead. (laughs) Are you a good judge of your own work? This is a totally selfish question, like, you know, from one creative person to another, because I feel like often I'm not. Um, do you feel like you're a decent judge of your own work? Like, do you feel like after you've completed a song or something, you're a pretty good judge of, I've actually got something pretty good here or not? I think at this point I am, but it's been a long time coming for me. So I've been writing, I started writing when I was 14 and now I'm 32. So a little more than half my life I've been writing songs. And I feel like in the last five to 10 years, I've started to get a good handle on what, what's working and what isn't working. Um, I don't finish everything I start and I don't, I think that that's my process. So if I start something that isn't working, I won't finish it. So most of the songs that I finish, I feel pretty confident in. And then even then, I mean, when I make an album, I usually bring 15 or 17 songs and only end up with 10 songs on the album. So I'm a big fan of like, you know, bringing everything that might work and then sort of culling as I go and figuring out what's working. Same thing with live shows. If a song isn't working live, I'll just retire it. Um, and what, so I think what would a, make a song not work live? Like the audience just doesn't really get into it or what? Yeah, I mean, live is kind of the easiest to judge because I'm playing small rooms for one thing. So I can see if there's 50 or 100 people, I can see what their reactions are and I can tell right away if a song is working or not. It has to do with how wrapped they are. So if a song is working, even if it's like a, intense emotional song and they're not going to laugh at it I can see while I'm playing it how um how focused everybody is if people are fidgeting and looking at their cell phones and all that stuff that tells me that that song isn't working and then same thing if there is a laugh line 
then people should be laughing. And if they're not laughing, then it's not funny. <laughs> Do you, it's, it seems to me that, I mean, this is kind of a corny thing to say, but like there's a lot of messages in your songs, or at least I take a lot of messages from them and messages that feel to my ears, at least very universal. And I'm mm. thinking about someone like, for example, like Loudon Wainwright III. I, I yeah. love Loudon. And he writes often very, very, very personal songs, including like very personal details. Um, right. And sometimes maybe for some people, they're, they're a little harder to relate to. With your songs, it feels a little more, yeah, like more universal, I guess. Um, there's mm. the personal aspect to it and some personal details, but it, it feels like it's a bit more of like a universal themes and, theme and messages. Mm. Are you intending to sort of convey messages with your songs or influence people philosophically or spiritually, whatever? Uh, I'm not. I'm not intending to do that. I think that it's just a matter of what is exciting for me to write about. And it tends to be more, um, more big ideas. I mean, there's some details in the songs, too. But yeah, Loud Wainwright is very, very detailed and personal. Yeah, <laughs> um, he's so good. And I think I some songs that are more personal, but it's like what what makes a song exciting for me, at least as a writer, is for it to sort of land on a larger theme that, that you can then return to. Like usually the chorus is like, and here's the point. And then you can do a verse that's lots of details and then you get back mm. to the point. Um, and I think what you're talking about, I think of as a distinction between pop music and folk music. Um, Loudon Wainwright is a folk songwriter. And I think you know, I play acoustic guitar and I toured for many years as a solo artist. And so people often thought that I was folk, but I think that distinction is actually what I experienced as the main difference between pop music and folk music. Pop music is going for the universality and folk music is going for the personal. And sometimes they both end up really resonating. Um, but also sometimes folk music feels too personal and detailed. Like if you don't have that same kind of life as the writer, then it's harder to relate to. Um, sometimes totally not. And also that's like a fairly recent distinction. I think folk music used to be the universal music, but as things are genre now in, in 2018, I think folk music tends to be really detailed and pop music is, is more universal. And I love pop. I love all kinds of pop music. So that's, that's, those are the songs that make me want to write songs. <laughs> Do you remember the first time you really wanted to write a song? Like, was there a band or a song that you heard and you just thought, I want to try to do that? Hmm. I feel like I always wanted to write songs. Um, I remember being like maybe 10 and listening to a John Prine song. Oh, yeah. John Prine is one of my favorite writers still and, and my dad's favorite writer. And my dad always played John Prine in the household. Um, so I knew a lot of his songs. And I remember listening to the song Dear Abby and I didn't know the phrase knock on wood. I didn't know what that meant because I was a kid. And I remember being kind of frustrated, like he should have written something else. And I rewrote that line so that it was like more understandable. And I remember being really excited by that, like, wow, like if I was the writer, I could have just written it that way in the first place. <laughs> um, and I think I did that for a few years before I wrote any of my own songs. I would just be like, that was dumb. It should have been like this. <laughs> um, so, yeah, basically, as long as I can remember, I was excited at the prospect of being able to write songs. I used to do that a little bit too as a kid. And I look back yeah. now like like the balls I had. You know what I mean? Like I'm rewriting right. a Neil Young song. Like, good Lord, that. kid. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but like that's one of the best things about being an artist, I think, is that you it is like you rule the world in a way. You get to decide exactly how your art should be and how people how you want people to experience it. And I think that's really fun. It's like, you know, it's like being a little god. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Do you know John Prine's song, Storm Windows? Mm, I've just been obsessed with this one. Storm Windows. I'll send it to you. It's just, anyway. Okay. It's been like... I saw yeah. and I think he played that, but I don't think oh, I have okay. it. The albums that I have. Yeah, he is a treasure. And I would still say underrated somehow. Like, people my age, totally. our age, like, I feel like not, not enough people give him his due. He's... I love John Prine. Totally. He's... Yeah, I think he's... He's sort of genre as like, oh, all those weird folk guys. But then he has all these incredible songs that are more like, that are very universal. Oh, yeah. I think he's a legend. I think he'll be a legend in like 20 years, at least. Yeah, yeah, I think <laughs> you're quite right. A 
<laughs> what What's the most satisfying part of your job? Is it crafting that song and like phrasing that lyric just exactly the way you want it, or is it live performance or like what what's what's the part of your job that just feels like the most satisfying? Oh, that's a great question. Thank you. Um, i I would have said writing for sure a few years ago, and now i'm I'm getting more comfortable with the fact that every part of this job is creative. Like I think the creative process, is my favorite part of life. So anytime I get to engage in the creative process and feel satisfied, like I brought it all the way to the end point, um, that's my favorite thing. Um, and I've always felt like songwriting is that, like I'm getting an idea and then I'm playing with it in this wonderful, magical playland uh, until it comes to the end point and then I have this thing, this song that I can like bring into the world. That's really satisfying. Um, but now I also feel that way about making records. Um, just over the past few years, I've gotten to that point with the with the studio process where I feel like I go into the studio with a vision. I do all this crazy, playful work that's much more collaborative than songwriting as well because there's other people involved. And then at the end, we have this thing and I can take it into the world. And um, that now feels, I think, equally satisfying. <laughs> uh, live performing, I think, is also creative, but not in the same way. So it's, I think that would be, that would be second on my list after writing and recording. Have you learned any secrets about what makes a really great show or is it, there's something just magical about that that you can't quite put your finger on? Like, have you learned something that you, you can do on stage to really make this a special show or to make it better than, than usual? I mean, the main thing is humor. I mm. think I, every performer should be funny <laughs> I just have a I guess a value judgment about that um yeah, I think I that when people want you to go sit down and see a show they want to be entertained and I have sort of an old school model of entertainment which is like you should keep them either laughing or crying or dancing as much as possible um so I when I go see live performers the thing that usually strikes me as like somebody should go manage them and tell them this is that you should tell jokes and you should have funny songs and you should do things that are, make people laugh and are entertaining. Um, and that's still my standby. Like when I play a live show, I want people to be laughing in between every song and during maybe half the songs. Um, and then the rest, I want people to be having a big emotional experience or at least like really grooving to the, to the, you know, rhythm section. <laughs> right. I guess the yeah. obvious counter argument is like, I'm picturing watching presidential candidates and like politicians on talk shows when they're trying to be funny and they're just not yeah. funny. And I'm yeah. thinking yeah. like not every musician's funny. So yeah, it's tough. Like I agree with you in principle, but and you should hire a really funny band member. <laughs> yeah, actually that, that's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. But no, that's true. But, I mean, this brings me to, I have like a thing hanging in my studio, which is my four favorite parts of music and it's hooks, humor, sex, and soul. Hmm. And so to me, what makes a great song is some combination of those things. And there's a lot of artists who have huge followings and everybody loves them, but they don't have hooks or humor or sex or soul. They have some other thing. And like that kind of music is just totally misses me. Like I hear it and I, I have no experience about it. I'm like, all right, I guess this is a song. So, so obviously I'm biased is my point. Right. <laughs> um, I think that I'm more attached to those qualities in music than a lot of people are. And clearly other people like other things about music. And that's theoretically, that's fine. <laughs> that's, that's not a bad album title, you know, I mean, I guess it might be a tad pretentious, but I'd, buy it. <laughs> yeah. I'd be interested. Like if the person, if the artist I knew had kind of like a dark messed up, uh, off the offbeat sense of humor, then I would get it. Otherwise I guess it wouldn't work, but I, I would. Yeah. Like yeah. So where did this idea come from for you to be a professional musician was has this been a lifelong thing or was there a moment when you said I'm really going to go for this or where did that come from there was a moment for me I um I started playing I mean I played piano as a kid but I started writing and performing on the guitar when I was like 13 so I was already performing as a teenager um and then I left home pretty young I moved out at 16 um and at that point, I was still thinking music was going to be a hobby and that I would get a real job. And then by the time I was 20, I had a real job, kind of. I was a grant writer, um, being paid a very small amount of money, but I was a kid, <laughs> so it was okay. Uh, 
And I remember like I was working from home as a writer and I really liked that job. And I was working for a nonprofit that I thought was cool. And I was, how old are you at this point? I was 20. Okay. So I was glad to be helping people and all that. And I remember thinking like, all right, this is like, this is one choice for my life. I could do this. But at that point I was already, I was performing and I was in a band and I remember thinking like, but I'm only 20 and like I could try music for a few years and just see what it's like. And then I can always quit. I'll still be plenty young and I can come back and do this job. Um, And so I guess I was 21 actually when I moved uh, back to the East Coast. I was living in Eugene at that point. And I like broke up with my boyfriend, moved to the East Coast. And my thought was like, I'm going to try this for like a year to be a professional musician and songwriter. And then at the end of that year, if it isn't the greatest thing ever, I'll just quit and do something else. Because I had a concept already that music was a really hard job, like hard to make any money at. Um, and then I moved to Philly at 21, and I ended up randomly meeting this this guy, Bill Ibe, who became my manager. Um, and that was just a crazy stroke of luck. He, was, he had managed a lot of people, and he basically was like, you're really talented, I'm going to help you. Um, and he got me tons of gigs, and he introduced me to all kinds of illustrious artists and I just felt like I got ushered into the to the world of professional artists uh, really early. Um, and that was what made it feel possible to me. Like, oh, all these people are grown adults playing music full time as a real job. So why not me? <laughs> um, and then it took another couple years for it to be for me to be making enough money to really live on. I think like I still had coffee shop jobs and stuff for a little while. Um but yeah, by the time I was like 23 or 24, I was already doing music full time. And once you're making art full time, it's really hard to go back because <laughs> it's so fun. Yeah. Here, here. <laughs> um, so that was what, eight, I'm just doing the math, you're 32 now, like eight years ago, roughly something like that. How is, yeah. the, I've been thinking about the music industry lately and, and the sort of economics of it. I was just listening to absolutely fascinating interview with uh, Dar Williams. Um, talking about the economics of the the industry and how it's changing and stuff. I mean, how has the industry changed in your view, like in the last eight years since you started, since you really got deep into it? Yeah. I mean, I was lucky in that the old music industry was pretty much already dead when I started really getting into professional musicianhood. And so I didn't have anything to be attached to. Like I think people from Dar Williams generation are experiencing a lot more sense of loss than I am. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so it has changed in the last eight years, but I think the big change happened like 10 to 15 years ago when people stopped buying CDs and record labels stopped making a lot of money. Um, so like for the last several decades before that, there were these huge corporations with just, they had too much money because they had their giant big selling artists. And so they were just looking to, they were looking to make bets on new artists, um, And so you could pretty easily get a record deal. Like I have a lot of friends from that generation of musicians who have stories about like, well, I played my first ever open mic and there was a record executive there and he gave me a record deal. Or like I played my first ever open mic and like somebody was there from the Letterman show. So they put me on the Letterman show. Like that shit does not happen anymore. Right. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I think that's the main thing is like, you know, there was a heyday in which the industry was just filthy rich. And so it was easy to come by a big chunk of money. Um, and that is now over. So I think there's a lot more sense of like being a working class musician. I think most people from my generation are, have the sense of like, this is our job and we're probably going to be in the middle class for our lives. And the, but we get to do art for a living. So what could possibly be better than that? (laughs) Um, and there isn't the sense that you're going to hit it rich at any point or that you're going to get a lot of help from an industry because there just isn't that much money or help to go around at this point. The good news is I, I mostly use crowdfunding and so nobody has any creative control other than me. <laughs> like if I get, you know, 200 fans to give me whatever, 10 bucks to make a record, that's totally up to me how that record goes. I don't feel particularly obligated to make a record that each of those people is going to really love. So, you know, I want to make something good, but I don't feel like, uh, I don't feel like anybody's in charge other than me. That must be a nice feeling. It is. I like being in charge. 
do you even have the ambition at this point in your career? Like, do you want to be on Jimmy Fallon or whatever? Like, is that on your mind at all? Like, do you have that, those thoughts at all? Totally. I wish it was on my mind less. I would love to be on Jimmy Fallon. Mm. <laughs> um, Why? Although it's mostly because I, gosh, it's kind of weird. A lot of it is, is ego. It's probably all ego. Um, I think I'm really good, and I think a lot of the people on Jimmy Fallon aren't as good as me. <laughs> so, so it's yeah. a sense of justice. It's I mean, like, I'm going to sound get- like I'm going to sound like I'm kissing your ass, but I think you're right. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's a sense of justice, but it's also like the slightly less egoy version, which is still pretty egoy, is that I really think my songs are good, and I think the way that I'm dedicated to song craft is a little bit of a dying art. And so I would like more people to be exposed to this, to my way of, of viewing songs and writing songs. Um, I think there's a big slide towards like, you know, it's not that important that lyrics mean anything. They're just words. And also like, it just has to sound pretty. It doesn't have to be like an interesting composition or like, it doesn't have to make you want to move. It doesn't have to change you. Music is just sort of this like, side dish this background thing um and so i feel like my songs aren't like that and i I want people to have more uh exposure to that kind of writing (laughs) did you read that that massive sort of bombshell interview that quincy jones gave a couple months ago Mm -hmm. do you remember when he was saying in there like you know we need more songs less hooks more more songs is that kind of what you're talking about i loved it i loved that whole interview I was like, this guy is just absolutely right. <laughs> I loved that interview, but I was a little suspicious of the claim that, you know, like Marlon Brando slept with Richard Pryor and <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, it's, yeah. Suspicious. <laughs> <laughs> it's fun read for sure. Yeah. yeah, I know. And he got so much crap for saying the Beatles couldn't play. But when you actually read it, all he was saying is that Ringo was a rock drummer and not a jazz drummer, which is true. Like if you get a jazz drummer in there and tell him to play something cool, and he's one of the top guys in the world. He's just gonna play it, for sure. And Ringo was, Ringo's like maybe my favorite drummer of all time. Oh yeah. But it makes sense. He's not gonna be able to do everything you can come up with in the studio. So anyway, Quincy Jones. I totally agreed with him on everything. I think he's a great guy. He is. Yeah, he's amazing. <laughs> um, going back a little bit. Actually, no. Before I ask that question, I'd like to know another question about sort of your career and how you're thinking about it. Do you set goals for yourself? Like, do you, have, do you have a vision of where you'd like to be in like five or 10 years? Do you spend much time thinking about that stuff? I used to do that a lot and I've kind of weaned myself off of it because so much of it is not in, within my control. <laughs> um, so I used to make goals like when I first started, when I like moved to the East Coast and was like, I'm going to be a songwriter. I wrote this whole document of like, like 25 things that I wanted to do in the next year, which included like opening for some people that I really loved and also like selling out a 500 seat venue. Uh, and a lot of that stuff is just not really up to me. (laughs) Um, like there's a luck element and there's a, an element of, you know, working with the right people who have the right connections to do that kind of thing. And there's the element of like, of money, like, since the record labels aren't throwing money at me, a lot of the money that goes into my career has to come from my career. So there's an element of like, if you're not making a ton of money, you can't spend that much on PR and you don't end up making that much money on the next record either. (laughs) You know what I mean? Mm. A lot of the bands that, that break have some like source of money. That's like somebody who's independently wealthy is backing them. Um, so anyway, a lot of that stuff isn't in my control and therefore I've stopped making those kinds of external goals. Um, the kinds of goals I make now are much more about, uh, my own creative process. Like I made the goal a few years ago that I didn't, that I wanted to only do the parts of my job that are creative. So I didn't want to do the booking. I didn't want to do answering emails. I didn't want to do shipping my CDs. Um, and I have managed to offload those kinds of responsibilities. So at this point, like 80 or 90% of my work is creative work, um, which makes me really happy. Um, goals I have now also tend to be creative. Like I really want to write, uh, songs for a musical. (laughs) So I'm like kind of looking for the kinds of people who might have the book for a musical that I would want to collaborate on. (laughs) Um, and those things are, 
still somewhat external, but they're much more about uh, meeting the right people and collaborating and much less about like finding a big pot of money. <laughs> what about in your personal life? Do you set any goals about changes you'd like to make, you know, in five or 10 years or whatever, or changes you'd like to make over the next year? How do you approach that stuff? A little bit. I don't know. I'm trying to like get in really good physical shape right now. So I like hired a personal trainer. This is my dirty little secret. I hired a personal trainer. <laughs> good for you. <laughs> because I'm, because I know that I don't have a lot of internal motivation about working out. I have a lot of internal motivation about like writing songs. Like I could, if you give me money and food, I can just go write songs forever and I will never be bored of that. Uh, exercising, I don't feel the same way about. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, as an example, that's a thing that I've set goals about. Um, I don't know what else. I mean, I have a pretty sweet setup. I'm, I'm married. My husband and I live in New Orleans. He does real estate development. So we like live in a house that we own and we get to do whatever we want to the house. I really like that kind of shit. I don't know. I don't, I can't think of anything else that I make personal goals about. It's pretty much all music and art. I How read a you, lot of books. What but are you I reading right really now? Uh, I'm reading The Shock Doctrine. Oh, Naomi Klein. I haven't got yeah. to that yet. How is it? It is overwhelming. It is mind blowing. It's very depressing, but also feels like it feels like nutrition. <laughs> it's like I need to know this information, even though it isn't the funnest to learn. <laughs> that, that'll look great um, on the uh, on the book jacket in the bookstore. Depressing nutrition, yeah. Carsey Blanton. <laughs> yeah, it's like eating your your yeah shredded wheat or whatever. Yeah, um, it's excellent. I really, really recommend it. It's changing my whole worldview. Um, but yeah, it's hard to get through because it's just a lot of really dark information about what America is actually involved in. Hmm. A lot of good books are like that, I find. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've been doing sort of an informal research project about that for the last couple years. About my little brother's a Marxist, so he's been kind of bringing me into into that whole world. <laughs> wow. Okay. When I was in grad school, I had a massive poster of Joseph Stalin over my bed. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, yeah. definitely Stalin's, went through that phase. Stalin's making a comeback with the kids. Yeah. <laughs> which is kind of terrifying. <laughs> I look back, I'm like, what was I thinking? But yeah. Um, I can see there's a lot of ways of looking at history. There are. It's complex. It is, yes. And mostly I just, I love propaganda. Like any kind of oh, yeah. communist propaganda, Russian propaganda. I was just in Vietnam. I got a bunch of stuff. I just, I love that stuff. Wow. Yeah. Going back to uh, life as a musician, life as a touring musician, how do you stay happily married when you're spending, I would assume, significant periods of time apart? Is, is that a challenge? Um, it works for us. So, my husband, John, and I, we've been together for 11 years, and um, I've been touring for much of that time, although kind of ramping up. So when we first got together, I was, like, gone on weekends, and now I'm gone, like, half of every year. Um, but I wow. think that we, we sort of started our relationship with the understanding that that was going to be part of it, and that's something that works for both of us. Um, and we also have an open marriage, so that's another way that it works. <laughs> I think we... I think we both value our independence a lot, and, and um, that's something that makes our marriage sustainable in a way that if you have one person who really values independence and the other one values domestic life and that kind of day-to-day -day routine, then that's not going to work. <laughs> but we have, we have, both of us are super independent and fairly obsessive about our projects, and so we're a good match that way. Did you... How did you make that decision to have an open marriage? Was it like that from the beginning or did you talk about it later on? It was like that from the beginning. Um, it was just sort of serendipitous. We, we had a one night stand and <laughs> the next morning we had the conversation kind of randomly where I think the way the conversation went is I had, I had been single for about six months at that point. But before that, I was still young. I was like 21 when we got together. Um, and that was right after I had moved away from the West Coast and broke up with my boyfriend. That guy I had been living with for like four years. And so I was pretty young and was sort of experiencing adult single life for the first time. 
So we had a one night stand. We woke up in the morning and I was like, I was like, listen, uh, I really like being single. I haven't been single that long. Um, I really like you and I want to hang out more, but I want to just be single. Like I want to feel that I'm single. And he was like, that sounds great. Let's do it. So the first like six months or something we were together, our, our way of talking about it was like, we are both single and we spend a lot of time together because we like each other. So I think that was like the founding principle of the relationship. And in some ways it's still like that, even though we're married and live together and own property and like have been together a long time. We both treat the relationship as like, we are both single. We're both independent people doing our own lives and we spend time together because we like to and not because we're obligated to. Do you ever feel like there's an occasional imbalance, like one person wants more of the other person's time or attention than the other person is able to give? Like, does that ever come up for you guys? A little bit, although honestly, it came up more for me in previous relationships, weirdly. Um, and I think that's just a matter of having mismatched uh, personalities. So even if you both are about the same in the level of intimacy you crave, there's going to be moments where one of you craves more or less. But I feel like because we're basically on the same page with it, if I have a bad day and I'm feeling needy, I can come home and be like, I'm feeling needy. Will you hang out with me? Um, and he can do that. And same with him, because it feels like the baseline is about right. We're basically balanced. Um, and I think there's a lot of things like that. If you're basically compatible, you can handle little fluctuations in your needs. <laughs> Whereas if you're basically incompatible, those little fluctuations can really drive you nuts. So I have to ask, yeah. how and when does jealousy come up? How do you deal with that? Yeah, that's a, that's a funny one. I used to think about it a lot. And the longer that we're together and married and experimenting with other people, the less it comes up, um, which I feel like sounds like polyamory propaganda. but <laughs> I do like propaganda. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And we're not to clarify, we're not polyamorous. We don't date other people. We just have fun, sexy flings with other people. Um, so anyway, when we first were doing it, I felt jealous a lot and I feel like it just mostly got burned off. <laughs> maybe like, maybe I just experienced it enough times and we still have been together through all those times. Speak of the devil. Um, that, <laughs> I feel like it just it just isn't as intense when it comes up anymore. It still comes up sometimes, but it's more like, oh, I feel a little bit jealous than like, oh my God, I have to like cry and rage and yell. <laughs> um, I also, I've said this, I've said this before in my blog writings and stuff, so forgive me if you've already read it, but um, I think that I value the feeling of freedom and of being allowed to connect to other people more than I value the feeling of security and not having to be jealous. So I'd rather feel a little insecure and a little jealous than feel trapped. It's much scarier to me to feel trapped and bored than to feel jealous. And I think that that's a person to person thing. For a lot of people, the feeling of jealousy is a lot scarier than the feeling of boredom. And that's just something you have to know about yourself. <laughs> I love the way you framed that. And I think that's so important too, like picking your poison kind of thing, right? Like there's going to be a shitty thing probably attached to the thing you want. And it's like, which shitty thing are you willing to put up with kind of, kind of thing, right? Totally. And also the dirty secret about monogamous relationships is you're still going to feel jealous in a monogamous relationship Absolutely. too. I feel like that gets left out of this conversation a lot. It's like, oh, if you're open, you're going to be jealous. If you're closed, you're going to always feel safe and never feel insecure. Yeah. It's like bad news, guys. Monogamy <laughs> is also scary. <laughs> 100%. No, I couldn't agree more. Have you always <laughs> known that about yourself, that, you know, valuing freedom that much? Uh, not really. No, I think that I learned that. I think one of the main ways I learned it was my last major relationship when I was, you know, an older teenager and had a live-in boyfriend. That was a pretty codependent, I think. And it sort of like snapped me out of codependency in a certain way where I got so like maxed out on that feeling of like, I need you and you need me. And that's what love is. I got so maxed mm -hmm. out on that, that I was like, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> um, and so I think that was like, 
the phase I was in when I met my husband was I was like, I'm so disinterested in a kind of codependency and so interested in a feeling of freedom and independence that like, that's not even an option for us. And the same is true for him, I assume. I think that he is more like, um, he always knew that about himself. Mm. Like he says that when he was 14, he, he had kind of a revelation that monogamy was a dumb idea. Um, just cause 14. he's like a weirdo. Yeah. <laughs> he's like a, he's a nerd and a really smart guy and he always was reading a lot and learning a lot. And I feel like he kind of came to that conclusion intellectually. Like, wait, what is monogamy really for? Like, it seems kind of dumb. <laughs> hmm. So that was his experience. Did your dad influence your thinking on any of this stuff? Because it's, it's, it's fun talking to you because I, I told you, I just interviewed your dad recently and I'm, yeah. you know, there's a lot of the same sort of ideas being thrown around. Did he influence your thinking on any of this stuff? I'm sure he did. Although, I mean, like most people, I went through a period of rebellion where I was like, all your ideas are bad. Um, but then I think, I <laughs> did think you just, around... did you just go around like <laughs> lying to people all the time or? <laughs> yeah. Just, just <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, yeah. Yeah. No, we always joke in our family that like the only way to shock our dad is to like go to church or vote Republican. Those, <laughs> that would really piss him off. Nothing else could really piss him off. Um, yeah. So I guess I went through a phase where I was like, Monog like traditional relationships are the way to go. My dad's wrong about everything. Um, and then I think in my, in my maturity, in my, <laughs> as I've become an adult, I've come around to be like, here's the set of these ideas that work for me and that I appreciate and like, and I'm going to use. And here's the set that like, don't really do it for me. Um, I think like anybody does with their parents' ideas. So, uh, I feel like his ideas about monogamy definitely influenced me and I had to go through the process of rejecting them and then coming back around to a more complex understanding of them. <laughs> That's fascinating. That's really interesting actually. But probably if I hadn't grown up with him, it would have taken me longer to like find non-monogamy as an option because it was clearly a thing I knew about growing up. <laughs> right. Okay, let me know if this is totally out of line, but I'm thinking about this a lot in my own life lately. What about kids? What, what are your thoughts on that? Um, I would like to have kids, and yeah. I think that I, we probably will. Hmm. Yeah. Have you um, always known that about yourself? Yeah, if anything, I've always I've always thought I was going to have kids and I thought I would already have them. <laughs> so, mm. I think it's been a bit of a foregone conclusion that I would have kids and I've had to like re-examine it a few times and be like, do I actually want this? And I think I do. I just really like kids. That's that's where that comes from for me. It's not like a big philosophical decision. I just think kids are cool. Kids are awesome. <laughs> and it's it's one of those life experiences that I feel like, you know, like that's that's one of the that's at the top of the, the heap in terms of just peak life experiences, I think. Totally. I'd like to ask Seems you... Oh, sorry, go on. Oh, that was all. Nothing. I'd like to ask <laughs> you about another one of your songs. Um, Great. Your song, Smoke Alarm. So, mm -hmm. without going into too much detail, I, I've had a lot of death in my life lately. <laughs> just people close to me. Um, and so, so, I've been... Yeah, thanks. I've been thinking about it a lot and I, I, you know, I was probably pretty obnoxious in a lot of ways. Like I've been into stoicism a lot. And so I've, you know, I'd always talk about death and I, you know, I considered my someone, myself as someone who had a decent understanding of it. But, you know, looking back, I realized I was totally full of shit. I didn't know what I was, what I was talking about. You don't really get it until you really, you know, you really lose someone mm -hmm. and your song, it, it's just gorgeous. And it's, I love the whole message of it. it it's, it's really you know, I think it's an important song. Where did that song come from? And do you think about death much in, in mm -hmm. your own life? Like, do you really consider that fact that, you know, this game is going to end? Do you consider that on a daily basis kind of thing? Uh, yeah. So there's sort of two answers. So I haven't experienced death of people close to me very much. So I'm going to just preface by saying that I think that my understanding of death is a little bit limited. Um, at least personally. And having said that, I do think about death a lot. And I, I find that I really like thinking about death. Like it, it, the same way that the song describes, I think that for me, thinking about mortality is really inspiring because it reminds me that like 
sort of the petty concerns of, of day-to-day life are, are really beside the point. <laughs> mm. Um, and that the point of being alive is just that you're alive and that's crazy and miraculous. Like what are the chances you would get to experience the world right now? Very slim. Um, so for me, thinking about death is, is inspiring and therefore it ends up, uh, inspiring me creatively a lot. Um, I feel like a lot of my work is sort of peripherally about mortality and, and, you know, the, the brevity of life. Um, so that's a theme that I return to. Um, that song smoke alarm is on an album, idiot heart, which was the first album I wrote after I started the process of moving to new Orleans. So I was coming to new Orleans a lot on these like writing missions. And I ended up writing this, that whole record was sort of a dark album about, about breakups and also about like sort of dysfunctional love affairs. Um, and death was another recurring theme. And I think a lot of that is just the sort of psychic, uh, nature of the city of New Orleans. Like there's a lot of writing about death that's been in the city for 200 years. Um, and there's something about the city that inspires that. And I, I don't know how to explain it other than to say that. The, I mean, part of it is we were talking about the parades. Like they have a parade whenever somebody dies here who's like an important community member. So it's very public. They have these public acknowledgments of death all the time. Um, and I really like that. That feels really right to me. Um, and, you know, it's a poor city. And so people die more than they do in, in other cities that are wealthier. Um, what is the vibe there yeah. now? I mean, post post Katrina, like what, what's the what's the feeling in the city right now? I mean, I know that's a crazy difficult slash general question, but what, what's yeah. your take on that? Well, so I was I haven't wasn't here pre Katrina, so I'm not a good authority on that. Um, but I can say that like a lot of cities right now, there's a lot of anxiety about gentrification, um, which is happening. And I'm part of that wave of like young white people moving to the city from other cities. So yeah. So again, not a good authority. Um, I find the city really magical and really unique culturally. And I also hear people saying like, it's less unique than it used to be. And like, we're losing our culture and that very well may be the case. Um, but I have such an outsider perspective on it. I don't really, I can't really say. So tell me about the effing truth. Yeah. Well, I have a copy right here. Oh, there it is. <laughs> um, so it looks a little, for anyone listening to this, it looks a little like Cards Against Humanity kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, that was kind of on purpose. I really want Cards Against Humanity to buy it from me, mm. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Um, so the effing truth is a is a game where you talk about sex in a sort of formalized way. So all these there's all these cards, a deck of 66 cards, and they uh, have questions on them about sex. So like number 41, have you ever had sex in front of an audience, for example? Um, but then there's also easier ones. That's kind of an advanced one, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be, yeah. Who's your demographic here? <laughs> yeah. Uh, have you ever paid for pornography? That's mm. a better example. Um, so anyway, there's all these questions and they sort of cover the gamut of, I mean, not the gamut of sexual experience, obviously mm. they cover a lot of different areas of sexual experience. Um, and it's a competitive game. So it's a little bit like bingo where you have a numbered board and every question you say yes to allows you to cross off a number and you're, you're trying to get bingo basically. Um, so it's like a competitive talking about sex game. <laughs> and where did this idea come from? Well, so the game used to be called Bango. Yeah, I read and... that. I, I like the new the new names better. Yeah. Oh, good. So mm. glad. Uh, I I thought of the name first. I thought of the name Bango randomly because somebody with a southern accent said the word Bango. Oh, that's was at hilarious. A dinner party in Nashville, and somebody was like. We went to play bango, and I was like, bango, that sounds great. That must be like a sexy bingo game. Um, so that like birthed the whole idea, and I started working on it, and I created this game that was called Bango. I released a Kickstarter for it, and then somebody else who claimed to have the rights to that name, Bango, which is disputable, mm. uh, <laughs> they got mad and made me take my Kickstarter down, and I renamed it The Effing Truth. So the name came first, but then once I had the game, it turned out to be really fun. So, um, so yeah, I ran a Kickstarter for the Epping Truth, and I just picked up a thousand copies of it yesterday. 
That's great. So it's becoming a real thing. <laughs> do you know? Do you have a date on when people can actually order it, and it will be sent to their house? I expect by May first, um, it'll be orderable online. So right now, there were whatever six hundred some Kickstarter backers, and they're going to get the first shipment. Um, and then the website, theeffingtruth.com, uh, it'll be for sale on the website and also on Amazon.com. And hopefully, eventually, Cards Against Humanity will take it over, or it'll be for sale in Urban Outfitters. Those are my two ah. <laughs> two goals. Very smart. Well, Carsey <laughs> Blanton, this was so much fun, and uh, thanks a lot for making time for me today, and I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. It's been really nice talking to you. He said, baby, what's the big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you wanna say You're gonna die one day For example, I could kiss you Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say That was Smoke Alarm by Carsey Blanton, which is in my top three, I would say, favorite Carsey Blanton songs. And you can find information about how to buy that song and how to get in touch with Carsey and all kinds of information about her and her very interesting work. You can get a link to the effing truth card game, which I can't wait to play. Uh, you can find all of that stuff at my website, zfstockhill.com slash Thanks for listening today. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. This was one of the most fun conversations I've had for the podcast. And thanks for everyone who has been showing some love in the comments section of my website or leaving ratings and reviews on iTunes. It really means a lot to me. And it's really nice to see that this podcast is connecting with people. It's connecting, hopefully, with segments of my older audience. And it's also connecting with a bunch of you new guys who are signing up and subscribing to the show. So thank you for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your support. One more quick reminder that you know the drill. If you're enjoying this show and you'd like me to continue making new episodes, please take 30 seconds to go on iTunes, make sure you subscribe to the show, and leave a rating and a review. I will leave you this week with another of my favorites by Carsey. This song is from her latest record, which is very, very good. It's called So Ferocious. And this song is called Lovin' Is Easy. I hope you enjoy it. And remember, folks, that life is short, so be sure to have yourself a good time. I'll talk to you again very soon. I'm in love with you, but it's alright. I fall in love nearly every night, and it fills up my heart till I can't keep it in. So I hope you don't mind if I say it again. I'm in love with you, but it's okay. I fall in love almost every day I'm in love with the boys in the band down my street And with every good poet I happen to meet Cause loving is easy, it's taking a breath I do it all day, till the day of my death I don't wanna own you you don't have to stay Just as long as I've known you I wanted to say I'm in love with you Is that a sin? Just look at the state That you got me in When I think of your hands Of your eyes Of your tongue I get suddenly foolish And I'm in love with you, honey But don't be afraid I fell in love With the love that we made But it's none of my business If you could love me You don't have to earn it I'm giving it free
Oh,